0: Thank you.
1: and I thought you might like to read this. Are you asleep? It's past noon. Stephen? Your Majesty?
2: I was thinking.
1: What about?
2: People I once knew. Ghosts of the past.
1: Gloomy. Let's open the shutters. Let some light in. Ah, this cell has the best view.
2: It can be very distracting.
1: You'd rather be left to your thoughts. And your books. I brought you this. Hmm.
2: Certain new observations by the Society for Accounts and Measures. (laughs) Sounds very improving.
1: There's a transcript of a talk with the Doctor. I thought you'd be interested.
2: That thing isn't the Doctor. It's a copy of his mind in a jar. A copy that's corrupted.
1: But he guides us. Add light, not noise. That's one of his.
2: Very profound.
1: A lot of people think so.
2: A lot of people can be wrong.
1: You can't be cross at them forever. At who?
2: (laughs) What are you talking about?
1: Everyone. I'm
2: not cross with anyone.
1: Of course you are. They deposed you.
2: (laughs) It wasn't like that. You weren't even there.
1: That's what you always say. Well, it's
2: true. So sure and certain, and you weren't even born. The young are all the same.
1: Then tell me what happened. Why aren't you king anymore?
2: It doesn't matter. It was all a long time ago.
1: If it doesn't matter, then there's no reason not to tell me. Don't you owe me that, at least?
2: Why should I owe you anything?
1: Because it affects me directly. And because I bought you lunch. Or is it breakfast? When did you last eat?
2: Hmm, does smell good. You always make fish soup when you want to twist my arm.
1: It works, doesn't it? You said you'd tell me when I came of age.
2: (laughs) That won't be for a very long time. It's your birthday today.
1: (laughs) Two weeks ago. It's not easy to get up here.
2: They like to keep people away.
1: Or you want to be left alone. You're sulking.
2: Maybe I am. Why shouldn't I?
1: I don't know, do I? Please, tell me.
0: (sighs) Two...
2: Understand why I was deposed. You need to know something that happened before I was king. When I was with the doctor, the real doctor. When I still travelled in time. This is more like it. Wow! I stepped from the TARDIS onto a bustling street, threading gently between the spires of a vast, immaculate city. The street was wide with a line of trees running neatly down its center. The trees were spaced at intervals so as not to obscure the view. We'd materialized in the shade of one tree, which I thought was why no one had seen us arrive, because there were hundreds of people a huddled mass of men and women in tunics and cloth caps. They all moved in the same direction, towards a crescent-shaped building in the distance. I glanced back over my shoulder. Through the trees I saw another great throng moving in the opposite direction. The doctor and Dodo stood with me, mouths agape in wonder. The doctor was an old man with Long, silver hair and glittering, inquisitive eyes. Dodo was a short, elfin girl, not much out of her teens. But she was from the late 20th century when young people seemed to be fearless. Except, I could see she was horrified. They have to be organized, there's there's too many people. Ah, but Stephen, just look into their eyes. Like cattle herded in their hundreds. Dodo shuddered, more like The Walking Dead. Oh, come on. It's no different to your time. All those suits and bowler hats crossing London Bridge. But as I watched, I could see it. There was something wrong. No one smiled or looked up or took in their surroundings. They just trudged ever on. Maybe we should leave. The Doctor looked like he might protest, but Dodo linked her arm round his and steered him back towards the TARDIS. Our path was blocked by two men in tunics and cloth caps. One of them looked the Doctor up and down with evident distaste. The Doctor stood firm, clutching the lapels of his coat. Are you a politician? My dear fellow, I'm nothing of the sort. No, it's true you're not the first to be so mistaken. I must have a a statesman-like bearing, don't you think? And yet myself and my companions are among the citizenry, just like you. That didn't impress the man. You aren't in uniform. Our uniforms are in that uh, uh, wardrobe behind you. If you'd just let us pass. He tried to step forward, but the man pushed him back. Everyone's got to be in uniform. I tried to intercede. Please, please, look, we've just arrived here. We we don't know the rules. The men stared back at me in confusion. Ah, it's all right, Stephen. These poor souls can't help it. Their minds are closed to anything outside their experience. Uh, Gentlemen, you've done well to notice us. Your superiors will be very pleased. Now, I must report your dedication if you'll please let me use this communication booth he stepped neatly between them and reached out to the door of the TARDIS. But one of the men caught his arm. Unhand me at once! What are you doing? Uh, I shall have to report this! Dodo and I tried to help, him, but we were grabbed by more people in tunics. A whole crowd had gathered around us, blocking the flow of people moving up the street. Stephen! Uh, Dodo! Get away while you can! Look, please! He's an old man! He gets odd ideas! What are you gonna do with him? One of the men in tunics studied me for a moment. You know the rules. Of, Of course I do, I just wanted to be sure. The man nodded. You heard what the old man said. He's a subversive, so he will be shot. Dodo started to protest. The man turned to sneer at her. Now, what do we do with you two?
1: Was Dodo your girlfriend?
2: Oh, no. A friend, I think. We didn't travel together for long. I I knew little about her. That's the way with travel. You cling to passing acquaintance.
1: She must have been more than that. You named a daughter after her. Sorry.
2: My Dodo was... Well, she was nothing like that Dodo. I happened to like the name.
1: Your daughter, Dodo. She was your favourite.
2: What? Who told you that? It's common knowledge. Oh, who is it? My daughters were, are, equal in my affections, even now.
1: But Dodo was more equal than the rest.
2: Oh, when she died, it wasn't easy. I wasn't easy on the other two. They told you she was my favourite.
1: I shouldn't have brought it up.
2: No. Raking up old coals when they're best left to burn out.
1: I'm sorry. But that doesn't mean we have to stop. Please. Go on with your story.
2: (sighs) Very well. It was like being back in astronaut training. They made me run on a machine and monitored my progress. There were tests of agility, response time, lateral thinking. Then I was back on the treadmill. Eventually, they let me rest in a room off to one side of the evaluation center. I knew better than to slump. Your muscles only seize up, so I did the stretches they taught me in the service. That was how Dodo found me when they brought her in. Despite her exhaustion, she couldn't help but laugh. That made her dizzy. Oh, come on, sit down, try and get your breath back. We we need to be ready to face whatever's next. Of course, she wanted to know if I'd heard any mention of the doctor. No, but trust me, he'll be all right. He'll outlive us all. She laughed and for a moment, I could almost believe it too. Dodo slept and woke a few hours later, sore because she'd not warmed down. I showed her some stretching exercises which she didn't take very seriously. Careful! You'll have us both run! (laughs) Ah! A woman in a tunic found us on the floor. She didn't seem very amused. We got to our feet, embarrassed, grinning like naughty children at school. The woman read out our test results from her clipboard. I scored well. I'd not worked out properly in some time, but running around after the doctor kept me reasonably fit. Dodo was relatively fit too, but lost marks for coordination. She didn't seem surprised and only rolled her eyes. I was never cut out to be a dancer. The woman in the tunic ignored her. She called over her shoulder and an aide hurried in, handing out packages to Dodo and me. a tunic each, just like everyone else wore. Dodo laughed. We'll be like twins, no one will tell us apart. That must be why there's this on my shoulder. She checked. No. Her tunic didn't have the three Cyrillic letters that mine did. Hey, that's not fair! Dodo protested to the woman. The woman showed Dodo the clipboard with the results of the test. I had scored higher in the test, so I'd been assigned a higher rank. I'd be sent to a separate part of the front. Front? What front? There's a war. The woman ignored me. Dodo tried to argue. You're not splitting us up. He's my friend. The woman's expression was cold. Not anymore, she told us. You won't see each other again.
1: That doesn't make sense.
2: They assigned us by our ability.
1: But they didn't ask who you were, how you got there.
2: They didn't care. They didn't know to care. We were just material to be processed.
1: But someone must have noticed. You arrived out of nowhere.
2: We didn't fit what they knew, what they
1: expected to see. They should have been amazed. You questioned everything they took for granted. Even your clothes were different.
2: Not when they gave us our tunics. We were assimilated.
1: You could have fought them.
2: I did. If not for the tests, we might have got away, but we were both still exhausted. Besides, there was nowhere to go. They could have shot us both, in the back, on a planet whose name I didn't yet know. But it turned out that a lot of people ran, their own people. It was built into the system. You were allowed to run away,
1: once. But if people ran, they knew the system was wrong. Maybe.
2: Instinctively but it didn't help us. They marched me away without a chance to say goodbye to Dodo. I resented being back in the military. The orders, tedium, the bullying, passive aggression. It had been my whole life once, but I'd been promoted, given my own ship, a chance to head out on my own. Time as a captive of the mechanoids, And then there was meeting the Doctor, the freedom of travelling in time and space. More than that, the Doctor's whole attitude, questioning everything, refusing to obey. No wonder they'd thought him so dangerous. I could do nothing to help him. The training camp was too secure to escape from. Besides, I didn't know where he was held, if they'd not already shot him. I didn't know where Dodo was, either. My best bet was to keep my head down Train with the other soldiers and learn about this world, how it worked, who they were at war with, what their weaknesses might be, anything that might help, when the opportunity arose. That wasn't easy. The army, like armies anywhere, broke tasks down into small components. As a foot soldier, you were at the bottom of the heap. You only knew your small part in the plan, not the plan itself. It was impossible to get a sense of the bigger picture. I told myself I'd resist. I went through the motions, doing as I was told, running the circuits, learning to care for my gun. I talked to the men and women around me, picking up their names and details of their lives. I remember one, a a young woman called Kajaman. It was her third time in service. I couldn't quite believe it. She didn't seem old enough, but she said she'd been on the front line aged 13. She wasn't proud, it was just a statement of fact. I asked her about her experience. She'd been one of a class of 20, the only one to survive, but she was keen to get back to the front. She said she'd been waiting for the redraft notification for two years, that she'd been barely able to concentrate on anything else. They all had that. A mix of excitement and fear. The war let them escape the drab humdrum of jobs in processing, manufacturing, dispatch. The threat of death brought them suddenly to life. It left me utterly cold. So I made plans. I'd escape. I'd resist. I'd bring the whole system down. But the more I played along and tried to glean new details, the more it took me over. The training wears you out. You can't think of anything but the immediate task in hand. Get something wrong, step out of line, and there's a penalty to pay. Another lap of the track. An extra early rise the next morning. Sometimes they punish the whole unit for your one mistake. So, just to survive, you work better as a unit. You look out for each other, You stop being an individual and become a component part in the machine. We wore the same uniforms. We became uniform. I'd been a soldier long before. And, like Kajuman and the others, it was all too easy to step back into the role.
1: They brainwashed you.
2: Institutionalised behaviour. A stick to keep us on the path, a carrot, if we stayed there. I can still taste the plastic sweetness of the puddings in the canteen. Simple pleasures, wretchedly effective.
1: They must have drugged you, or used some machine. You wouldn't give up like that.
2: I gave up the throne.
1: But that's different. You fought
2: back. I didn't fight. That was the whole point.
1: You avoided a war. Is that what this story's about? You went to war and you saw how bad it was, so you wouldn't risk it again. That's why you gave up the throne.
2: (laughs) I'd not thought of it like that.
1: But it's true. We can't always
2: tell how experience shapes us. We react to circumstances as best we can, but not always consciously.
1: Then that isn't the point of the story.
2: Not the one I meant. Besides, I wasn't completely in their thrall. I was still looking for ways out, or ways to change the system and there was an election coming up. All soldiers must vote. Not voting or spoiling a ballot paper is a level six offense. A time to vote will be allotted to your router. We were in the trenches by then. We sloshed through the mud, trying not to gag at the stench. An officer yelled at us to keep our heads down or we'd be seen by snipers. A maze of narrow, uneven lanes. Rooms had been dug into the soft earth, but despite the letters on our tunics, my unit didn't qualify for those. We had to sleep out in the open, in the mud. I'd never been so cold. It cut through our uniforms, right to our bone. All soldiers must vote. Not voting or spoiling a papers and It seemed incredible that they wanted our opinion. Surely every man would vote to end the war. I spoke to my comrades, but that thought had never occurred to them. When I suggested it, they only laughed. The enemy, they told me, would stop at nothing to destroy us. They were ruthless creatures, quite unlike men. My blood ran cold at the thought that they might be Daleks. Soldiers, at ease. my name is Dravus Morton. I served six times, with distinction. Now I offer my service again to the brave people of comfort. The soldiers didn't think much of Mortimer's chances. They were more keen on a woman called Volta, who'd lost a leg in an airborne attack and still led her unit on. But I was learning new information. The planet was called Comfort. When I asked my comrades, they argued about whether it was named in Hope or after a pioneer with that name. I learned more, that the trenches stretched for mile after mile right round the planet's circumference, a line of longitude creeping forward and back as we soldiers laid down our lives to stop the enemy creatures. We had to keep them back if the city was to survive. And that is why we, all of us, you and me, must pledge to make progress. All the candidates pledged progress, decisive victories, a marked step closer to the end of the war, with us leading the charge. They prepared the way with a barrage of heavy artillery lasting over an hour. We waited, weighed down by full and heavy kit, shivering with cold and fear. It gnaws right into you like hunger. The younger, less experienced soldiers looked to us older ones, But the more times you face war up close and intimate, the worse it is to go back. Then they unleashed us out into the churned up mud. You run hard and fast through the smoke and fire and dust. You don't think, just run, trying to stay on your feet. The ground falls away underneath you and you still keep on. Hot bullets hiss by, a comrade stumbles, don't break a stride, catching his elbow, helping him on. You're not a man anymore. You're not an individual. The training kicks in. You're subsumed. A component part of the whole the unit pressing forward across the scorched and ravaged earth into the enemy fire.
1: You must have been protected. Energy shielding, some kind of array.
2: Our tunics had a special coating that deflected heat rays.
1: But they weren't shooting heat rays. You said there were bullets.
2: It wasn't the best strategy.
1: But it would have been a massacre. It was. You should have turned back. You should have run.
2: I said, by then we weren't thinking. We were part of the machine. Our training made it instinctive. But once people were dying... It shook some of us out of the dream. But then what? We were right in the midst of the carnage. No sense of which way to turn. And if we'd run, we'd only been shot in the back. So you went on? We tried to. But what hope did we have? Well, you survived. <laughs> I was one of the lucky ones. I was one of the first to be shot. I came too in the field hospital, a kilometer back from the front. For the first few days, I couldn't speak. They had work to do on my throat. throat) But how did I get here? The old surgeon was rushed off his feet and didn't have time to explain. I learnt I'd been dragged back through the mud by a medical robot. A nurse explained that robots were too expensive to risk losing in the field. I'd fallen early, and my unit had long since moved on, drawing the enemy fire with them. I don't know how long I must have lain there in the mud. My friend... Kajuman, all the others, none of them came back. We shall redouble our efforts to win decisive victory. The worst part was the politicians. As I lay convalescing in my hospital bed, I couldn't escape from the broadcasts. It wasn't only me who objected. Patients threw things at the speakers and were then restrained. The worst thing was that the pledges didn't change. The candidates promised new advances while the wounded kept being brought in. Nurse, nurse, can you tell me, look, how many from my unit made it back? How much land did we gain? They couldn't tell me. Such information was classified, they said, for the good of the war effort, but the truth cut deep inside me. What my unit had done, what it had cost us, made no difference at all, and the more I recovered, the sooner they would send me back. We are proud to announce a grand new offensive. We shall commit all resources, all available personnel, and we shall send them out to win.
1: It's madness.
2: How well do you know your history?
1: I've read what records there are.
2: When I first came here, The Elders could see, all of time, judge a man's place in history.
1: They knew who the Doctor was when you arrived. They studied his wanderings. He destroyed those machines.
2: He set you all free.
1: But as King, you established schools to teach us the history of the Great Empires.
2: I hoped we'd avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. There was a war on Earth before we'd ventured into space. They were cruder times, full of arcane ideas. They thought mental health was carried in the blood. You were born to suffer and you couldn't escape.
1: Just an excuse to keep the lower classes in their place.
2: Then there was a terrible war. The rates of madness multiplied.
1: Stress and trauma.
2: Were barely understood. This is where we began to understand, because the poor, lonely soldiers weren't the ones to suffer madness. It was the officers, those of better blood.
1: Because they had more perspective. The poor ones, the lowest ranks, they knew it was miserable that they made the best of it. But if he was senior, you knew more of the context, the bigger picture.
2: The cost in men. And for what end? If they dared question it or tried to rebel, they were taken out and shot.
1: So they went mad?
2: The only rational response to the madness of war.
1: And that was you, in the hospital? Everyone else was conditioned all their lives to accept things as they were, but you, you could see what was happening. And you were powerless to change it. Was I? What could you do?
2: I could choose my moment. They sent me back to the front. I was somewhere further south, down the line. I think that was a kindness. If they sent me back to the same position, I would have seen that my whole unit had been killed. This way, I could hope that a few of them had made it. At least, I suppose so. The dugouts were slightly better constructed and had gutters on one side of the trench. Otherwise, I might have been back in the same place as before. I hunkered down with my new unit. I was one of a number of replacements for soldiers they'd lost the previous day. We didn't talk, but huddled around an open fire and ate from our food cylinders. I remember their pinched, haunted faces in the firelight. I don't remember their names. I sat with them, but kept myself remote, not part of the machine. They slept, one of the women on watch. There was little to see, cloud obscured the stars. Sometime in the small hours, I got to my feet and stepped round the slumbering bodies. The woman on watch assumed I was off to answer a call of nature. There were other sleeping bodies. And then I turned a corner and had a small section of trench to myself. A ladder lay on its side in the mud. I retrieved it, propped it against the trench wall and started to climb. cloud hung low, obscuring the battlefield. I could see only a few tens of metres. The ground was ravaged by years of combat, and my mind conjured movement in the dark and twisted shapes. Enemy creatures shuffling out of sight. I knew it was my senses playing tricks. The breeze whispered, but the only other thing moving was me. I made so much noise. Every step, every breath seemed to call out my position. But I'd committed myself, venturing out into the open, and I could only press on. The ground was uneven, treacherous underfoot. More than once I slipped. I was sure someone must have heard. That enemy snipers were watching me. They were indulging me before they fired. I was good entertainment on an otherwise still night. There were lines of barbed wire, each snip echoed, and I snagged myself and my tunic on the barbs. I expected other defences too, sensors for movement and body heat. Any moment, any moment I'd be seen or heard, the first I'd know of it would be that I was dead. But I made it through. I made it across the battlefield to the enemy trenches and still no one met me. The trenches were very much like ours, crude, collapsing, affording little protection other than keeping the enemy out of direct sight. I might have mistaken them for the trenches of my own side and they were occupied by humans. The men and women slept in the mud of the open trench as we did. I stepped carefully over and round them One of them stirred, opened his eyes to look up at me, then snorted and went back to sleep. So we were not very different. They wore tunics much like ours, but with distinct different colours and insignia. I looked down at my own uniform, caked in mud from my journey across the battlefield. In the dark, the mud had worked as a disguise. I went on glancing into the darkness of the dugouts as I passed. My plan was to find a senior officer and hope they didn't shoot me out of hand. And then, I stopped in my tracks. The sound had come from somewhere up ahead, but I could see no one in the trench ahead. No, there was a glint of light. The barrel of a rifle wavering slightly as it pointed in my direction. A soldier behind it, hidden in a nook, a good concealed position. I raised my hands, but the soldier on watch clearly knew I wasn't on his side. Why didn't he shoot? I felt a sudden anger that he'd prolong the moment. Unless the soldier wasn't sure. I dared to take a step forward. The enemy soldier could see exactly who I was. And that step closer, I could see him too. Not him. Her. It was Dodo.
1: the battlefield, you were in the enemy trench? Yes. But there weren't any creatures. Just humans. And Dodo was there, pointing a gun at you.
0: Hmm.
2: Quite the puzzle.
1: She must have switched sides. No.
2: She'd done the same tests as I had and we'd both been assigned our places. She did the training, put on the uniform they gave her, while looking for her chance to escape. And she did. That was how she was in the enemy trench. Then why was she wearing their uniform? Don't you see? The city provided soldiers to both sides. It was helping the enemy? There was no enemy. They were at war with themselves. The evaluation they'd done, the tests on Dodo and me, they did that to all their recruits to ensure both sides would be equal.
1: So no side would have the advantage? So the war could never be
2: won? I couldn't believe it either. But why? Who benefits from a never-ending war? Dodo only shrugged. Anyone who makes weapons. (laughs) You mean it's a con? A way of fooling the system so that 2 plus 2 equals 8? Dodo laughed. (laughs) That's economics. She wanted to explain the theories, or she enjoyed my befuddlement, but we couldn't risk being spotted by her comrades, who'd have had me shot. So she led me away through the mud. We arrived at a dugout, a black space in the trench wall. It didn't look very inviting and absolutely stank. I stepped back, but Dodo prodded me forward. As ever, she was shrewdly pragmatic. Latrine got hit in a bombardment, so no one ever goes in there. It's a good place to hide. Go on, I'll be back as soon as I can. Where are you going? She stared at me like I was stupid. I'm still on watch. If somebody sees me away from the post, I could end up shot. Stop being a baby. Get in there. She shoved me forward and I fell into the fetid dark. By the time i picked myself up from the dank and stinking floor, Dodo had gone. I could only wait and try not to be sick. I don't know how long I had to wait there. Sometimes, even now, I can smell it. I can feel the animal panic, the need to flee from the dark, though it meant certain death. But I waited, and waited, and then, it was Dodo. She'd brought me a spare tunic, one from her own side. I quickly changed into it and stamped my old one into the mud of the dugout, concealing it as best I could. Then I scrambled out into the sweet-smelling air of the trench. Dawn was just breaking, the ravaged earth, the squalid, muddy lane. It looked utterly beautiful. You took your time? Dodo stared at me in astonishment, and I realised. In my trench, our rolls and rotors were carefully allotted. I'd have had a job finding a spare tunic and going about unobserved. She had risked her life to help me. I'm grateful, really. She nodded, then bit her lip. I thought she was going to cry. But no, that wasn't it. Stephen, I don't know what we do now. There's no way out of the trenches. And now it's dawn, there's no way to cut back across the battlefield. If my side didn't shoot us, your side surely would. It's all right, Dodo. I worked it out while I was in there in the dark. I know what we do to change things, how we end the war.
1: You informed Dodo's commanding officers, told them what was really going on.
2: And what do you think they'd have done?
1: They wouldn't have known who you were. You'd have been shot. No one asked
2: who I was. So many soldiers passed through those trenches, one more didn't worry them. And I was wearing the right uniform.
1: Then why didn't you report what you knew? They'd have investigated. Just checking the supply lines, they'd quickly have seen that they lost half their personnel to the enemy.
2: You think they would have got permission to see those numbers? If they were senior enough? Would we have got permission to speak to anyone that senior?
1: So what did you do?
2: I thought you were meant to be smart. I am! Then it should be obvious. There was only one person who could stop the war. The Doctor. Don't jump ahead. And it wasn't him I was thinking of. Then who? Not an individual person. A class.
1: The election! You went to the candidates.
2: You think they would have believed me? But you're on the right line. What was the only possible way I could change things?
1: Oh, (laughs) it's almost stupid.
2: That's more or less what Dodo said.
1: You stood for election.
2: The rules were simple. No one was barred from seeking office, but those who received less than 1,000 votes could not stand again. That was the principle. We asked around among DoDo's comrades and further up the trench, doing the legwork, researching the ground, but no one seemed to know anyone who'd stood in an election. The rumour was that those who failed to get enough votes were seen as a liability. They would not command the respect of a unit in the trenches, so they would be reassigned to roles out of sight of other soldiers, or, the rumours insisted, were given assignments that they would not survive but I couldn't find anyone who'd even heard of anyone who got more than a thousand votes. No one seemed to have met any current politicians before they'd stood for office. It seemed painfully obvious to Dodo and me. The political class who made the rest of us fight had never been in the trenches, except when campaigning for votes. Ordinary soldiers might stand for office, but they were never elected. There was a divide, perfectly calibrated to keep the status quo. Those in charge stayed in charge, the rest of us fought and died. So I assumed someone would try to stop me, an ordinary soldier, from standing. I thought it would be more difficult, but at least I'd force them to confront me. Whoever ran things, managing the war, I'd make them take me on. Dodo took me to see her commanding officer, a russet-faced man called Irvin. She clearly already knew him. Dodo had a way of getting on with everyone. She explained our plan, that I would stand for election. Irvin stared at me in astonishment. Then he started to laugh, because he loved the idea of one of his boys being in the limelight. He said he'd rally support, talk to the neighbouring units, put in a good word about my record, which, of course, didn't even exist as I'd come from the enemy lines. Before I knew it, we had a campaign. There was a real excitement about an ordinary junior soldier standing in the election. I'm an ordinary soldier, like the millions out there in the trenches, good men and women fighting the good fight, pressing on for victory. I'm determined that we will win this war, and I can help be a part of that. The more I bluffed about my record and the things I might have done, the more people assumed I was downplaying my achievements and the more the soldiery loved me. We campaigned all through the trenches. Then we were in the city. Everyone had their place. The vast numbers of people I'd seen in the city when the TARDIS landed. They worked in munitions or food, kept the streets clean or were teachers, doctors and nurses. I soon learnt that they'd all been assigned to their roles by edict of a central computer and they all lived in the shadow of conscription. Sooner or later, their number would come up and they'd be sent to fight. Many had already been to the trenches, often more than once. They were proud of their service, keen to tell me of small contributions they'd made. I said the right things, I shook the right hands, I was in the right kind of photographs. But it was all platitudes. Really? I'm an ordinary soldier. As I went to the dinners and photo opportunities, I hoped I'd meet someone who'd try to stop me, who'd want to put me in my place or threaten that I couldn't win. But the other candidates for election seemed to respect me. They thought I could help them reach the fighting men. Or they didn't dare contradict me. A little to my and Dodo's surprise, I was a serious contender. Everyone wanted to hear me make the same speech, the same promises. I'm an ordinary soldier, like the millions out there in the trenches. There were those who offered us money, unasked for, to help with the campaign. And people twitchy with nerves in my presence who needed to shake my hand. And people who mouthed the words back to me as I said them. Good men and women fighting the good fight, pressing on for victory. I met the candidates I was standing against, good men and women of different ages, few with practical experience other than political campaigning. I'm not a hero, but I stand to represent the heroes fighting the good fight. The more terrible the line, the more they seem to love it. And finally, I met the ones who'd already been elected. The politicians, chosen by popular vote, by the people, not the choice of a computer. I met the ones who'd served a single term, and the ones who'd held office for decades. They too, grasped me by the arm as if we were old friends. They smiled a little too keenly. They treated me with awe, not necessarily from respect, more from fascination. To them, I was a novelty, but one who might just change their whole world. When I spoke my platitudes, they nodded as if I were imparting brilliant new insights. I'm determined that we will win this war. We have to win, and we will. Yes, they tell me. I was exactly what they all needed. A soldier with experience who knew what it would take to make the final push. They all looked at me with such hope, such expectation. They wanted me to save them. But the more I understood, the more I knew that wasn't true.
1: You mean they didn't know what was really going on?
2: Not one of them. I tried to tell them. You're at war with yourselves. It's all some terrible trick. They nodded and said I offered an important new perspective. It didn't change a thing.
1: They were lying. All right, not all the politicians were in on the secret, but the top ones must have known what was really going on.
2: Then they would have heard me shouting it from the rooftops, but not one of them tried to stop me.
1: That was your plan, to get noticed... Not by the politicians, but by whoever was really in charge.
2: Well, it was what the doctor sometimes did. It saved a lot of time. Don't chase your enemy, make him come to you.
1: But if you were right, wouldn't they try to kill you?
2: <laughs> More often than not. It wasn't perfect as a plan, but it didn't work. No one tried to stop us.
1: So you told people what was happening? The politicians, the workers, everyone?
2: We tried to. They didn't believe us. They thought it was a figure of speech. When I said, we're at war with ourselves, they thought I meant, we must overcome our own weaknesses to win. Then what did you do? How do you convince anyone of anything? Come on, what did they teach you at school? You
1: establish
2: an evidence base. Dodo and I chose senior politicians first. We took them to see the evaluations, the tests being done. We showed them what happened next. Soldiers assigned, left and right. Then we followed where they went, saw the uniforms they each put on.
1: And the walls came tumbling down.
2: No. They still didn't believe it. What? They could see something going on, something terribly wrong. But, But you're missing the point. The system was so deeply ingrained, they'd all grown up in it. They were all part of it.
1: So they couldn't see outside it? And
2: us challenging the very world around them, all they knew and understood, I can't blame them for being afraid. They came late at night, or early in the morning. I'd been working late, another round of speeches and campaigning, then back to the hotel room to collapse. All right, one minute. They weren't police, soldiers, an elite unit. I assumed it was a coup or assassination no, I was arrested. Look, what have I done? You've not told me what I've done. I hadn't done anything. It was Dodo. As they bundled me out of the hotel room, she was in the corridor, handcuffed too, and weeping. Because it was her fault. They put us in different cells. Dodo, can you hear me? It'll be all right, whatever you did, we can fix this. But there was no answer. They left me alone till the morning to brood. He didn't tell me his name, he was just my counsel. An officer with scars down one side of his face. He played me the recording. They must have been recording us for days. Just for one snippet they could use. Dodo crosses at our lack of progress, snapping that we had to end the war. Look, I'm trying. What else can we do? There was a short silence on the tape. And then Dodo could be heard quite distinctly. If you got the politicians to surrender, then everyone would see. High treason. Look, you don't understand. It was her job to challenge me. To say the unthinkable, it made me a better candidate. But I was too late to help her. She'd been indicted as a subversive. They'd taken her off to be shot.
1: And there was nothing you could do?
2: I still fought them. Begged for an appeal. I had to be restrained. It didn't make any difference. I couldn't help Dodo.
1: But they let you go.
2: The recording was clear. I'd not agreed with her. The prosecution argued that I should have reported what she said, but my counsel said I would have the next morning if I'd had the chance. My enemies had been so keen to arrest me that they saved my life. They must have
1: loved that.
2: Hmm. I like to imagine their faces, but I didn't know who they were.
1: Well, you were right. You provoked them.
2: And what good had it done me?
1: It damaged your election campaign.
2: (laughs) It annihilated it. What? No-one would even acknowledge that I'd ever been a candidate. Irvin, our campaign manager, denied he'd ever set eyes on me.
1: But you had to do something. Dodo... Dodo
2: was dead.
1: You stopped fighting.
3: Mm,
2: not exactly. I went back to being a soldier.
1: You know what I mean. Dodo died. And you stopped fighting.
2: Ah, you don't mean that, Dodo. My daughter... When
1: she died, it was like before. You couldn't do anything, so you gave up. She was your favourite. She was? And you'd not seen her for months, too caught up in politics.
2: Negotiating with her sisters. I'd offered them dominions in my kingdom, estates to rule for themselves.
1: You'd think they would have been grateful.
2: Dodo had tried to warn me. People always show their best sides to the king. Being the youngest, the one with least influence, she saw what I never did. The rivalries, the envy. Not just between her two sisters, but riddled through the court. The battle for influence, the mania for power.
1: It's easy to dismiss it when you're at the top. (laughs)
2: That's what your mother said about me when I was king. She's right.
1: When did you last see her?
2: I can't remember.
1: You should. It would be good for both of you.
2: You think she wants my forgiveness?
1: Is that so hard to believe?
2: I don't know. I never knew what my daughters wanted, apart from me out of the way.
1: And when Dodo died, you stopped fighting them?
2: No. I pressed on. And did exactly what I'd set out to do all along. By the time your mother and her sister realised, they couldn't stop what was already happening. Or hadn't you noticed? Neither of them are on the throne. There are no thrones anymore. But they said... They said a lot of things. I've let them. It helped me achieve what I wanted.
1: Which was what?
2: I told you. You won't understand that without knowing what happened before on the planet Comfort.
1: But you told me what happened.
2: I hadn't quite got to the end. So, do you want to know? Then let's continue. Once again, they threw everything at the enemy before sending us out to attack. Not that it had ever made any difference to the massacre to come. It was just what they did, what they'd always done, what they would do ever after. I'd been put in a unit of young soldiers, most of them with little experience of the war. They looked to me to lead them, to show them what to do. I had to set an example or they wouldn't survive. Command must have done it on purpose. We readied ourselves for the signal to attack. I felt a terrible calm, like I'd been set free. I didn't expect to reach the opposite trenches this time. I didn't expect to survive. But I'd exhausted all other options. There was no way out of the madness of the war but to follow my orders. That meant charging to my death. We waited for the signal. But it didn't come. The young soldiers turned to me as if I'd know the answer. Situation normal, we stand by our positions till the signal comes. But it didn't come. Up the line we heard soldiers talking, whispering, even laughing. Something was very wrong. And then someone was running through the mud towards us. My soldiers raised their rifles, but I put out my arm the figure coming towards us wasn't wearing a uniform. She was in her ordinary clothes. Dodo! She threw her arms around me and hugged me tight. My soldiers stared in wonder and I didn't know quite what to do. It didn't seem real. It didn't seem possible. I held on to her. She hugged me. But but how? She grinned up at me, still holding me tight. Hang on. There's going to be an announcement. A serious voice addressed us. I thought I recognised it, one of the senior politicians I'd met.
1: The war is over. I repeat, the war is over. The enemy has surrendered. We
2: stared in wonder. We didn't dare join in the cheers until... We found him holding court at a party for the politicians. He was quite the celebrity and the hero. The man who'd ended the war to end all wars. We sipped champagne and joined the revelries. But when Dodo went off to get us more drinks, I had a chance to question the doctor. But... but how? Oh, it was perfectly simple. These poor people couldn't help themselves. This was an old penal colony set up for prisoners of certain personality types, hmm? Intelligent, driven prisoners. The name they chose, Comfort, it meant they would be cared for. A computer devised roles for them suited to their nature, but in a way that was centralized and hidden from view, hmm? No prisoner could see the overall system. A modification of Bentham, I think he'd have been delighted. (laughs) Peculiar man that he was, hmm? The central computer, it created the war with impeccable logic. Don't you see? It was perfect. That's why it lasted so long. But you pulled it apart. I admit it took a while to work out how. Once I'd escaped from my execution... uh, Don't look like that, of course I escaped. Once I escaped, I found my way into the archives. Oh, the system still faithfully records its impacts and outputs. The numbers involved, the millions who've died. It's monstrous. Oh, indeed it is, but also ingenious. (laughs) No one person could see enough of the system to understand it, to question it. Hmm? And if they did, they were identified as a threat. Exactly. You speak out of turn, you threaten the success of the war effort. But, you know, what I couldn't work out, what, what took me all this time, was how to surrender. The system didn't have any way to recognise surrender, to acknowledge the end of the war. It was a perfect, closed loop. But you found a way in the end. Oh, no. <laughs> there isn't a way to end the war in the system. But the war's over. Not because of the system. I told the politicians who I was and that I'd surrendered. They did all the rest. Because they didn't know any better. They couldn't see more than their small bit of the system. (laughs) Exactly, and I told them what they wanted to hear, yes. The system thinks we're still at war. But the people have stopped paying the system any heed. (laughs) Now we'll prod them in the right direction so they start to dismantle it. You and Dodo can help. Let let me introduce you to some people. We spoke to people. We helped them make plans. And then the doctor told us it was time we left them to sort it out for themselves. We'd done all we could. But, doctor, we can't just leave them now. Their whole way of life's been overturned in an instant. They hardly know where to begin. And all they know is war. (laughs) I know, my boy. But... It's not our struggle anymore, we cannot get involved. Hmm? There were also those who wanted to see the enemy leader put on trial for war crimes. We couldn't hang around. So against my better judgement, I followed Dodo and the Doctor back into the TARDIS.
1: Against your better judgement?
2: Those people needed our help. We were responsible, we changed everything, and now we were running away. Who knew how they might end up? It had happened before. We thought we'd help the humans escaping from the ruin of Earth, but because of us, the monoids took over. And I'd been thinking, anyway, because of the rocket men, because of other things, if you want to make a lasting difference, You can't just leave after one night.
1: So when you came here, you offered to stay? To help rebuild our society?
2: A life's work. It was the challenge I'd been looking for. I think the Doctor knew that.
1: But you failed. We deposed you.
2: I said, a life's work.
1: It's what you planned all along.
2: Self-governance. Meritocracy. A fair system for everyone, without any need of kings. That's what comfort taught me.
1: Your reforms, they made people see they didn't need you. They took power for themselves.
2: And I stepped out of their way. You've got along pretty well without me.
1: It's not a perfect system. There are still arguments. That's
2: probably healthy.
1: But your daughters... Dodo
2: understood what I was trying to achieve. Your mother and Rayleigh, they weren't so keen.
1: They saw you dishing out powers to other people.
2: Squandering their inheritance. Do you think it would have made your mother happy if she'd been made queen? She'd have fought with Rayleigh. One of them would have lost.
1: She says she can be proud now. Everything she has, she worked for.
2: But she still thinks I was wrong.
1: She can't understand why you just walked away.
2: At first, just to get out from under people's feet no good giving up power if people only ask me what they should do next. I had to let them stand on their own feet. And then the longer I left it, the harder it was to come back. There are still those who want my advice. (laughs) As if I know how to do things any better than they do. Best to keep away.
1: So you're trapped up here? That's why you call this your cell? The word can mean something else.
2: Once, with the Doctor, I visited a thing called a monastery. They were meant to be communities of thinkers devoted to their rituals, copying out books so that knowledge might live on.
1: But you're not copying out books.
2: I'm writing one. More than one. What I saw, what I learnt at school, what I used to take for granted. All the history in my head before it's lost.
1: But why? We'll get the machines working again. We'll be able to see all of space and time.
2: They've been promising that since long before you were born. Besides, it keeps me busy. Stops me being tempted to return.
1: But you should. We need you.
2: That's the whole point. You don't need a king.
1: I understand that. I agree. That's exactly why we need you.
2: Someone else wants the throne. Your mother.
1: No. And not my aunt either. But it is someone you know.
2: That thing in the jar? The Doctor. It's not the Doctor. A twisted copy of his mind.
1: Well, whatever it is, people heed what it says. It's helped them. Us. A lot of us. It's wiser than anyone else.
2: It's a mistake. An abomination.
1: So you say and now it wants to be our king.
0: Hello, I'm David Richardson. I'm the producer of the Companion Chronicles. And I'm
3: Simon Guerrier. I have written more Companion Chronicles than anybody else because I'm best. Have you? I think so, yeah. I've done like, loads of them.
0: I wish I'd known that because I would then have got Johnny Morris to write a lot more just to beat you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so we're here today and this is the last recording Yeah, of the Companion Chronicles, isn't it? It's the last of this series. Yeah, you must really dislike me.
3: <laughs> <laughs> this this yeah. is mine. This is the thing I can do. Yeah, it's it's weird. Well, you tell me why why aren't you doing any more?
0: Well, first of all, I should say this. Although this is the last recording, it's not the last one to be released. So there are a few more further down the line. Right. Um, I think uh, following this, there is the Elixir of Doom by Paul Mars, and there is Second Chances by John Dorney Oh, I've read that one. That's really good. Is, I like that one. Outstanding, isn't it? Um, so yes, but this is the final recording. Um, why are they ending? Because there are a lot of them. We made the decision a few years back to do 12 a year, um, which was a great idea, and it's proved very popular, but it's also meant that there's this huge back catalogue of the Companion Chronicles that a lot of people just say they haven't had a chance to catch up with. Right. So we felt that it would be good to stop, take a breather. They might come back. Um, I'd like them to come back. I mean, I'm... I'm it wasn't an easy decision to make because I'm deeply attached to them and very proud of a lot of them. Oh, it's um, a
3: great format to write for. I really you mm. get into the heads of characters. You can the things you can do with it as opposed to a full cast play. Just just the sort of intimacy that you can build up. Yeah, I think is very exciting and really satisfying as a writer. You can
0: also break that more. I know I, I, some people complained at some point because we were moving away from that template occasionally and doing things like the scorches episodes. And, you know, there were the people musical. who complained
3: about the scorches.
0: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, My feeling is if, if you've got a format, then it's good to break it occasionally because then you come up with things that are quite marvellous and different. Um, but yes, I've got lots of favourites. What are your favourites in The Companion Chronicles?
3: Gosh, loads of them. I love The Last Post by James Goss. Uh, I also hate it because it's such a brilliant idea that I wish I'd thought of it. That was my first thought as soon as I realised what he was doing. I was actually quite angry with myself for not having thought of it. It's such a great idea and James does it so well. Um, What a brilliant piece of writing. Um, I adore the uh, Mahogany Murders, Andy Lane's J. Young Lightfoot. That's very good. Uh, Johnny Morris' The Beautiful People, right from series one.
0: I haven't
3: uh, heard that one. Wow. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> what great. a confession. It's great. Oh, also from the early days, Old Soldiers, the Lethbridge-Stewart one is really good. I really enjoyed that one. Um, I loved Mother Russia. You did The Suffering? Did yes, well done. Good to yeah, 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 I loved that, which I hadn't heard, but you gave me to so that I could write The Perpetual uh-huh. Bond, and I, I did listen to that, going, oh, this is going to be difficult to follow. Mm. But it was full of things that I would never have considered putting in the comedy in The Perpetual Bond came out of that. So it actually quite a lot of Stephen and Oliver's relationship came out of that dynamic, that mm. it was just lighter and funnier, which I would have never have really thought of for Stephen. Oh, there's loads. pisscon Paradox is very good. That's the Nicola Bryant one. The funny thing about that one, though, whereas with The Last Post, I kind of look at that and feel very envious because I wish I'd thought of it, with pisscon Paradox, that's not the sort of story I would do, so I don't feel quite so hot under the collar about him. It's really good but I don't feel quite so jealous.
0: But I mean, It's quite a catalogue, isn't it, when you actually think about it? Oh, yeah, there's some great ones, some really good ones. So uh, let's, let's move on to this one, um, because you've written trilogies for Peter before, or one trilogy at least.
3: Yeah, so I wrote three Oliver plays, and then I wrote The Anachronauts, so yeah. I've written four plays for
0: him before. OK, and so now you've come back with this one, what was your thinking behind it? Well, the first thing was
3: that I got asked to do it, as I remember it, I had an email from you at the beginning of the year where Peter had said to you he'd like me to write another one and so you said, have you got any ideas? I had lunch with Matthew Sweet who just made a documentary on the science writer Alex Comfort who uh, wrote books and papers on all sorts of aspects of science and Matthew had a theory that Alex Comfort had been in the line to be the scientific advisor on Doctor Who in 1966 when um, Jerry Davis was looking for somebody to put more science into Doctor Who. And Matthew's theory for this is that he argues that the three stories by Ian Stewart Black, uh, The Savages, The War Machines and The Matra Terror, all betray aspects of the sorts of things that Comfort was writing about, about old age, about technology and about how people are controlled in society. And so I naturally said, well, if there was a fourth one, what what writing would you look at? To which Matthew suggested... That I read Comfort's Authority and Delinquency, uh, first published in the 50s and republished later with um, some amendments, which I found fascinating. But one of the things he actually says in that is you could set up a computer program to um, control people. You could could classify people by personality types in this way and run a society in this way. And I immediately thought, oh, there's a Doctor Who story right there. So whether Matthew's theory is right or wrong, um, it was a great great uh, opportunity to tell a
0: story. And um, we we sort of bounced backwards and forwards the idea of whether it would be a mainly a narrated story with the second voice within the fabric of the story. You were very keen to keep the narration all on Peter, weren't you, so that he was driving the flashback story?
3: Yes, I was thinking of two things. One was that I was thinking how much I'd like doing that with the trilogy I wrote for Gene Marsh, um, beginning with Home Truths, where she was narrating a story to somebody in the present. And I thought that worked very well. The story is as much about where she is now as it is about the story that she's telling. So I wanted to do that with Stephen because I wanted to tell the story of where he is years after he left the Doctor. And I was also thinking, because Peter does create such a vivid portrayal of the first Doctor, that I was thinking about, if we're doing an older Stephen, it would be quite fun to sort of parallel The Doctor is an old man, you know, because the the Doctor that he knew is an old man. Stephen is now an older man. So I was thinking about things like, oh, I might give him a granddaughter because that's how the first Doctor was. And there's actually some kind of, even though Stephen didn't meet Susan, there's kind of parallels between the two of them. And you can kind of see how the Doctors had an influence on Stephen and his outlook and things. So that's where it came from. And, And how doctorish is Stephen in his old age? That was that was the sort of thing I was thinking about.
0: Peter came in saying it was going to be a big challenge to do, but he's been amazing, hasn't he?
3: Just he is, yes. I, I interviewed him for Doctor Who magazine over the summer and he said he re- really wanted to do more acting and he wanted to show a bit of range. So I put that into the script and gave him more to do and made it harder work for him. So um, if he's got anyone to blame, it's, his, it's, it's himself. <laughs> um, but he's brilliant and, and his choices are really good. His, his way of differentiating young Stephen, older Stephen, the Doctor and the other characters, I mean, Peter would admit his First Doctor is not an impression of William Hartnell in, in that sense, but it's a distinctive character so that you know who's speaking and it's, it creates a sense of somebody else being in the room. That's what you need for the, for the storytelling to be effective. And because he can make that a distinct character, when I'm writing it, I can give him more things to do with it so that it makes the story feel richer and, and more populated. So, yeah, so I know, having written plays for him before, that I can push him and it will be more effective as a
0: result. OK, then one final question. What are you most proud of in The Companion Chronicles?
3: Oh, that's a difficult question. There are lots of things I'm proud of. I'm desperately proud of what we did with the Sarah Kingdom trilogy. In terms of my own writing, I think that marked a significant point in my career, that I think my writing since then has been better generally. I'm really pleased with the Oliver Harper trilogy. I think the revelation that's in the second one is, is something we can all be rather proud of. I think we handle that rather well. And generally, I just think the quality of them is good. I know that's terribly immodest, but I I think I've actually done quite a good job on them. And I've really enjoyed doing them as well. It's been a really nice thing to work on.
0: Hmm. (laughs) No, I agree with you. It's been a really nice thing to work on with lovely people. Hmm. So everybody involved has been fantastic. So that's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. But you've still got two more to listen to. Goodbye.
3: Goodbye.